<coughs> the last three books that we're going to look at and, uh, uh, is Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. <coughs> now, that was going to take us a while, so this isn't like I'm saying goodbye this morning. Uh, <laughs> this is going to take us a while to get through these books. Uh, I, I picked Hebrews first <coughs> uh, simply because uh, it's probably... I, I, I hate to use the word hardest. It, it is to most God's people. Actually, I think it's the easiest book of the three. Uh, um, all three of the books, I, I would say that the hardest one to really fundamentally in, uh, get together is the book of Acts because there's so much happening in Acts. And you've got to be able to stay up with the flow and be able to see when things are crossing over. But Matthew and Hebrews... Even though they're, and you know as well as I do, these are the three books wherever heresy comes into the church. It's, it's in one of these three books, or all three of them, mostly. But in Matthew and Hebrews follow a pretty simple outline. And if you follow the outline, it's, uh, it's pretty easy and straightforward. And, you know, so... And, and and that's what I've done, <clears throat> and we haven't done Matthew yet, but that's what I've done in Hebrews, is basically <clears throat> show you an outline. And, you know, there, in, in the book of Hebrews, the thing that messes people up is because uh, there are some verses here, uh, about eight or nine of them, that <clears throat> they don't know what to do with. And when you try to put Hebrews and make Hebrews to the church and to make the Hebrews Hebrew Christians, man, you're, 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 you're off the deep end and you ain't ever getting back. And then you run into places like 2, 3, 3, 6, uh, 3, 14, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, chapter 9, verse 28, um, 10, 26, which we're going to deal with today. Uh, 12, uh, uh, 14, and places like this, you, you know, they don't know what to do with it. So, as always, they, they completely destroy the overall meaning by trying to put it into some ridiculous application. And, of course, when we started our book of Hebrews, I told you very clearly and up front that it's not written directly to you. It's written to the Hebrews, so you've got to look at it uh, as the context by which Paul is writing it. We talked about the authorship of it already. And what he's doing here is chapter by chapter, and we've seen this now in the last nine chapters, and we continue to see it on. Uh, what, he's, what he's doing here is showing the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, that the Old Testament was good, but the New Testament is better. And so that's the key word in here. Uh, the key word is better. And you're going to find that over and over and over and over again. Fourteen times in the book you find the word better. So as any book in the Bible, when you have to approach it to learn it, you have to establish the context of the book first then you establish the context of the chapters. Then you establish the context of the words versus however you do it. So you got to always keep that in mind. And so as we came through all of these chapters, and I'll, I'll not go over them again because we, 
We, we've seen a better priesthood. We've seen Christ better than the angels. Uh, and now we're into, you know, we saw the new covenant. And now we're moving into a better sacrifice and a better offering. And this will bring us up to chapter 10. Now, chapter 10, as the rest of the book of Hebrews, is completely taught wrong. Uh, just about wherever you will go today. And you'll find that most pastors uh, just stay away from the book of Hebrews. They may pick a verse out here, a verse out there, but as far as getting into it and trying to explain it, they stay 100 million light years away from it simply because, you know, it's a landmine and you just run into these verses that they don't know what to do with them, so it's easier just to avoid them. Now, <clears throat> I want you to get this down. In, in some place in your Bible at chapter 10, you know you need to put this. I got my, if you have a, an Oxford, you know, chapter 10 starts down at the uh, end of page 300 and, you know, then spills over into the next one. And I, you know, I put mine right under that, those first three verses there. But, uh, you know, here's what you have. The context of chapter 10 deals with the aspect that Israel, the Hebrews, had a chance to get Christ three times. And we know that those three times were John the Baptist, they killed him, Christ himself, they crucified him, and then Acts chapter 1 through 7 uh, with the Peter uh, sp uh, preaching of Peter, and then finally Stephen, and they, they killed him. So it's a thing where, uh, you know, it, it, this is what he's saying. And he's saying that Israel had three <coughs> chances to get Christ, and they reject him all three. And now, uh, and this is the verse that you get into, verse 26, look at it. It says, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Now, the, the Baptists just go completely bonkers on this one. And we'll talk about that when we get into it. But I want you to understand that verse 20 is one of those verses that you just, what do you do with? And what you have here now, or 26, excuse me, what you have here now is in the context. And he's saying that Israel had three chances to get Christ and they reject him. And now, because of that rejection, they are sinning willfully and the rejection because they knew exactly who he was. <clears throat> and you see this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Uh, and you in that chapter, particularly in verse 38. And now, because they knew who he was and they rejected him, they're sinning willfully in that. And now there can be no more sacrifice for sins because Christ was the only sacrifice, they rejected him, so without him, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Now, you've got to get that in there someplace, because that really unlocks chapter 10. And uh, chapter 10 is really built around verse 26. And if you don't get the context of that, then you're like John MacArthur or most Baptist preachers out there, you get a message on, you know, if you sin willfully after you're saved, there, remain, there comes a point in your life where there's no more sacrifice for sin. I don't know anything that is more blasphemy 
than that. But when you don't know anything about the Bible, blasphemy becomes your best friend. And that's what we're up against. So let me say it again so you get it. And the context of this chapter deals with the aspect that the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, have had three chances to get Christ. John the Baptist, Christ himself, and then Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, ending with the death of Stephen uh, in chapter, uh, Acts chapter 7. And because now of their rejection, knowing who he was, they're willfully in sin based on crucifying him when they knew who he was. They willfully knew who he was and then willfully crucified him. And now, uh, verse 26 tells us that because of their willful knowledge and act in killing him, that there remains no more sacrifice for sins because Christ is the only sacrifice. And now that they have rejected him, all they have to look forward to is the judgment of God, which is the tribulation period. So, got to get that in there. And, you know, and you'll see that as we come through here. All right, let's pick it up in 10.1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually uh, make the comers thereunto perfect. Now, verse 1 is a, is a blockbuster verse because there it tells you that in the Old Testament was a shadow of the New Testament. That means that in the Old Testament, you'll find pictures of the New Testament. And that's one of the greatest verses that establishes the idea of types and pictures. We saw it last week in uh, Exodus chapter 12. And we saw how that, that, that works and how that, that uh, really plays itself out. So, you know, that is a great place to see that. And then it goes on and says that, uh, that the sacrifices in the Old Testament, even though they pictured and foreshadowed the coming true sacrifice of Christ, uh, they had to do it year by year continually. Uh, and uh, it, uh, they could never make anybody perfect. And that's what he's saying. Uh, and now, I don't know how you're doing the book of Hebrews, but in my Bible, I did it, you know, every one of these verses that means something, I have it defined by that verse. So as I read it, it's all right there. And everybody does their Bible differently, but I'm just telling you, that's the best way uh, to do it. For then, verse 2, they would not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there was a remembrance again made of sins every year. And what he's saying here that the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't make anybody perfect. The Old Testament sacrifices was a temporary stopgap that if a man obeyed God in doing them, he got God's righteousness, but at the same time, uh, he, he wasn't perfect, and he had to continue to do that. Now, this has, this has led to the age-old, oh, boy, you've heard this battle on all my Christian life, is the fact that um, people get the idea and, 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 uh, that the Old Testament was built on a system of works. And the Baptist crowd, and they, 
they they just they don't know enough about the Bible, and they're so ingrained with the Baptist doctrine that has been poisoned the minds of so many people over the years that uh, guys who who know nothing about the Bible that you know they just balk at the idea of somebody in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, coming to the point where they had to work for their salvation because there's so many cults out there today, every one of them, that teach for the New Testament that salvation is based on your works. And Baptists are so against that. They're so caught up in that that they think that if they, uh, you know, if they would agree to that, that that would, you know, be some terrible thing. In fact, you know, they there's a part of the Baptist mindset that teaches that everybody uh, in the Bible is saved the same way. And somebody who takes that position is just somebody, honestly, I mean, they may be the nicest guy on the planet, uh, but they don't know anything about their Bible. I mean, fundamentally, that statement is so ridiculous that, you know, how can everybody in the Bible be saved the same way? And, of course, they, they hinge that on the fact that they're, uh, you know, of grace and faith. And so when you say a system of works, they think, because they're ingrained with Baptist stupidity, they think that that means that in the Old Testament there was no grace and there was no faith. And, of course, that's not true you're going to find grace and faith are in operation from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, there's no question about it. It's, a, it's, it's two of the staples that have to be, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But they're not applied the same way. And that's where the problem comes in. And they are so shallow when it comes to the Bible that they, they can't see that. And so they get the idea that you know, that everybody in the Bible, and then so you, so to, to, to foster that idea, then you get the idea and the teaching that everybody, because you got to go here now that, to get your way out of this hole you've dug, that everybody in the Old Testament is looking forward to the cross, so God gave them grace and faith in that, and we look back to the cross and we get grace and faith in that. Now, it's true on our part, but nothing could be farther from the truth um, and you could go through the Old Testament and you'll find that uh, a man gets God's righteousness. Now, I don't like, in the Old Testament, and I, I know I do this, I don't like to use the word saved because that word is synonymous with New Testament Christianity. So when you use that, you're automatically dragging New Testament salvation back into the Old Testament by using the word the real biblical word in the Old Testament for their salvation, we'll use that term, is getting God's righteousness. And the first time you find that is with Abraham, where Abraham went out and looked at the stars at night and he believed what God said and God counted it to him for righteousness. So you're going to find that in the Old Testament, the word is not saved. The word is not, you can use the word salvation, but it's always in a national sense. But the word for individuals in the Old Testament is righteousness. 
getting God's righteousness in a temporary Old Testament format. And let me show you that in a couple of places here. Let's, uh, let's go back to Ezekiel. And you want to get these down because these are places that leave nothing to the imagination. They're very clear. But they're just obscure to guys who don't study your Bible and rely on getting their truth from other people instead of the Word of God itself. Okay, now watch, look at verse 24. Now watch this. See this? I'm in Ezekiel 18, 24. Now watch. But when the righteous, there it is. When the righteous turneth away from his righteousness. He didn't say, but when the saved man turns away from him being saved. See, he used the word righteousness because that's the word in the Old Testament, not saved. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? <clears throat> now here's a man who had God's righteousness in an Old Testament saint, sense, and then he violates that, and then he, he, uh, he turns away from his righteousness. Now, <clears throat> somebody could make the argument, well, that man lost his salvation, and that's what you know, that's the thing that drives Baptist up the wall. And of course, the answer to that, you could not lose your salvation in the Old Testament because you didn't have individual salvation in the Old Testament. But you could lose your righteousness because righteousness in the Old Testament is not the same as your righteousness in the New Testament. So now he goes on and says, but when the righteous turneth away from righteousness and committeth iniquity and doth according uh, to all the abominations of the wicked man doeth, shall he live. Now here it comes. All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass, that he hath trespassed in his sin, that he hath sinned in them, shall he die. Now he, there's a man who had the righteousness, but then he loses the righteousness. Now you just can't get around that. That is, there's just no way that you can fudge on that. The only thing you can do is play stupid and not know where the verse is at. And that's what most of them do. Now I'll show you another one. Come over to Ezekiel chapter 3. Verse 20. Again. When a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity. All right, here's a guy who was righteous. He had righteousness like Abraham did, but then he turns from it and he commits iniquity. And I lay a stumbling block before him. He shall die because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin and his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered but his blood I will require at thine hand. Now, there's a man who, when he has it and then he loses it, God remembers it no more. I mean, what do you, what do, you do with that? I mean, there's no way around that. Now, I'll show you another one. Come over to uh, uh, Habakkuk.
Habakkuk chapter 2. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. Because there's no spiritual circumcision in the Old Testament. Now watch it. But the just, justified, righteous, but the judge shall live by his faith. His own faith. Now when that verse is quoted over in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1, down around verse 17, when Paul uses it, He takes out the word his and says the just shall live by faith, showing you the difference between the Old Testament righteousness and the New Testament righteousness. In the Old Testament, a man lived by his own faith and his own righteousness. In the New Testament, we we, we exist in Christ's faith and his righteousness. There's a difference. Now come over to Zechariah chapter 13, second to the last book in your Bible. Now, this is in the millennium. Now, watch this. In that day, verse 1, there shall be a fountain opened up in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanliness. And it shall come to pass that in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the, like, uh, cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass, that here come, that any yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begot him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesied. Now there's somebody in the millennium that loses it because they're preaching about Christ when Christ is clearly on the throne and there's no need to preach. So you begin to see that, that uh, in the Old Testament, it was a completely different setup. And a man in the Old Testament could get God's righteousness, then he could turn from God's righteousness. And you see this in the evidence of the spirit of Saul. The spirit of God is on him, and then the spirit of the Lord leaves him, and then an evil spirit comes unto him. And that's simply the way that it worked. But clearly, you know, the Old Testament sacrifices could not make a man perfect. And to say that a man in the Old Testament is saved just like somebody in the New Testament is such an an obvious, ridiculous statement that on the very face of somebody in their junior high class could ask the question, well, if that's true, then why didn't they go to the same place when they died? And of course, the answer to that is because they weren't, they weren't, they didn't get God's righteousness the same way. And I know I use the word saved too because it's a, it's a force of habit, but I try not to if I'm cognizant of it and just because it, 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 led, it lends to confusion. Then he says in verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. <clears throat> and that's the problem. The, uh, the, the, the offerings in the Old Testament as we saw in one, they're a shadow of good things to come. All of those sacrifices 
<coughs> that they made back there, each one of them, one way or the other, <coughs> will lay out a different picture <coughs> of Christ's complete sacrifice. But, and this is where he says in verse 1, that they were a shadow of good things to come, but there was no perfection in them. They couldn't take away your sin. They could only temporarily cover it, and God gave you his righteousness based on that temporary covering it as long as you stayed with it. You know, back through the Old Testament, you'll find that when it came to salvation, salvation has always been by grace and it's always been by faith. You couldn't even have any form of God's righteousness without his grace because we don't deserve it. So grace is in operation all the way through. So is faith. But where faith differences is the fact that in the Old Testament, God told men to do different things, and based on those different things, if they obeyed it, then by faith, then they got God's righteousness in the Old Testament saints. <laughs> the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was told to build a boat in a world that had never rained. And Noah's salvation was based on him believing what God said and then acting on that and building a boat. Moses could have believed in God all he wanted, and if he would not have done the act of work to build that boat to the saving of his household, he'd have died like everybody else. So he did his own work. Abraham goes out and sees the stars, and God says, someday your seed's going to be like that, and Abraham believed it. And the Bible says God counted to him for righteousness. Different, completely different. The two were not even the same. One was about a boat, the other was about a star, but it took faith in believing what God said. Then you have Moses and the law. <clears throat> now the Moses and the law, it's in the sacrifices. And so now they have to do the sacrifices. Building a boat won't do them any good. Going out and looking at all the stars won't do any good. Now they've got to follow a law that God has implemented <coughs> into their <coughs> culture, into their world. They had to exercise faith in that, but they had to kill the lamb. <coughs> so all through the Old Testament, <coughs> you find works because it's based on his righteousness, the man, as I showed you just a few moments ago. And I, I'm careful when I say what I'm about to say because, you know, a lot of God's people, they only listen halfway what you say. Some of them don't even make it to the halfway mark. But I would say grace and faith is an operation from the Old Testament even into the New Testament. But if you want to get right down on the Bible level, all salvation is by works. The difference is in the Old Testament, it was by that man's faith and what God told him to do, but he did the work. In the New Testament, we're saved by our faith in the finished work that Christ did for us. Somebody had to do the work for your salvation. In the New Testament, it just wasn't you. It was Christ. And the Bible talks about the finished work of Christ. He said, I've come to do the work of my Father. In the Old Testament, it was their works, and they had to exercise faith, and, and God gave them the grace. They exercised the faith in whatever God told them to do. 
in the New Testament, just as Noah had to go to a world and say, hey, uh, the, the, a flood's coming, and everybody looked at him and scratched their head and wondered why he was building a 300-yard boat in the backyard. People look at you when you say you got to believe that a dead Jew hanging on a tree 2,000 years ago had enough power in his blood to wash away your sins. They both sound ridiculous, but they're both true. And that's the difference. What you're propagating to the world is no different and no more ridiculous from the world's standpoint than what Noah did. If Abraham would have went out the next day and told all his friends, oh, God showed me the stars last night, and he said that someday my seed's going to be like that, they weren't even a nation yet. He's not even called a Hebrew yet. They'd have thought he was nuts, just like they think you're nuts. And, of course, the difference is it's always faith, it's always grace, but it's always grace and faith in whatever God tells you. In Old Testament, it was one way, New Testament, another. In the Old Testament, because a man didn't have the perfect sacrifice to take away his sins, he could get God's righteousness, but he could turn to iniquity and he'd lose God's righteousness. We and I can't do that. You're stuck with it. Praise the Lord. And God won't take it away from us no matter what we do. And, uh, you know, that's the difference. And so, you know, that's what you're looking at. <laughs> so it says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. There it is. See, this is what John said, and, and Aaron asked a great question Thursday night. This is what John saw, what John knew. And we saw Christ coming. He knew that, that that was a body that was prepared to take away the sins of the world. And he knew that based on, as I showed you, the sufferings of Christ were found in the Old Testament along with the glory. It was the Holy Spirit of God that had to separate the two and show you each one, just like the Holy Spirit of God has to separate the Bible for you today when you try to study it to rightly divide the word of truth. The reason why there's so many heresies out there about the Bible and Christianity today is the same reason they missed Christ at the first coming. Men have rejected the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they're left to themselves to try to figure it out. And you can't. And that's, that's just what you're dealing with there. And then he says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. Pleasure in the sense of taking away somebody's sin. God obviously accepted it as a, as a temporary mode, but there was no pleasure in it. And if you want to take that word pleasure, then you take it back to the Old Testament passages dealing with Christ's crucifixion where the Bible says that it pleased God to bruise him. Christ dying on the cross was the pleasure that God took to take away our sins. He did it in his son, but he didn't do it in bulls and goats. See, See how it begins to make sense when you just... Just follow the, follow the outline. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of a book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now, that's a quotation of Psalms chapter 40, uh, verse 7. David's writing that. And basically it's saying that, that uh, uh, you know, the book would be the Old Testament that was written, that David was reading. And David saw Christ in those things. So, you know, it's in, in Christ, cru 
crucifixion is all through the book of Psalms. Are you kidding me? And then he says this. Above when he said, sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. He says, God is not going to take any pleasure in the Old Testament, and he's not going to accept that because, you know, of, of, what, uh, of what Christ has done. And then he says this, verse 9, Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Now, when it says that he, 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 uh, he, he, he taketh away the first, that's the Old Testament law. He took it out of the way by nailing it to his cross, Colossians chapter 2. And when he did that, then he established the second. And, of course, what he's talking about here in particular is the priesthoods. Because the Old Testament law was based on, we already saw this in chapter 5 and I think chapter 7, the comparing between the Old Testament Levitical priesthood and the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek, which Christ represents. So what he's saying here, that when he, what he did was, uh, he took away the first, the Levitical priesthood, Old Testament law, and he established the second, the eternal priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. And that's what he's talking about. And then by the which will, uh, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And what he's saying here fundamentally is that Christ took away the Old Testament and he established the New Testament. And, you know, and every priest standeth daily ministering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And of course that's true in Paul's day when he wrote this because the Jews were still going through the whole thing. You know, one of the, one of the things that has always amazed me and it shows you the complete, total dishonesty of the nation of Israel as far as the religious leaders is concerned. They're still giving the same sacrifices, and this is after Christ's death. They're still doing the same sacrifices that can never take away sin based on the fact that they know that the Old Testament is not in effect anymore. Most people don't stop and think that when Christ was crucified and he died on that cross, the veil that separated man from God, the inner sanctuary from the Holy of Holies, which no man could cross over without dying, the only the high priest could go in once a year to offer the sacrifice of atonement. When that crucifixion took place, that veil was split right down the middle. Imagine when the first priest after that went in to do whatever he was doing, and he saw the veil was ripped, and he saw what was in the Holy of Holies. And yet he didn't die. He called his buddies. They all come in. They all looked at it. They all went into the Holy of Holies. Nobody died. Don't you know that they knew at that point, based on what they knew about the Old Testament, that something had radically changed? That before, why well, they used? To, I've heard that when the high priest went into the Old Testament, that they tied a rope around his ankles in case God killed him, they could haul him out, because he had to be 
above board and everything. Now here they come in, the veil's ripped. You can walk right in and see everything where before it killed you. Don't you know that they knew that something radically had changed? And yet, somebody sewed it back up. Somebody sewed it back up and pretended like it didn't happen because when Titus came down in 70 A.D., 40, 50 years later, and destroyed Jerusalem, they're still going through the Old Testament protocol with the veil, the Holy of Holies, and the tabernacle pretending. And see, that's a, that's a tremendous principle in itself because many times God's people will do the same thing. <clears throat> they'll see the real deal. They'll see something that has radically changed people's lives, like a Bible-believing church. They'll see a situation where people are growing and getting into the Word of God, and God is truly radically changing people's lives, and in their own hearts, they'll sew that back up and pretend like it isn't really there. They do the same thing. Human nature never changes. You'll always have people who <clears throat> will take a look at the real thing and make it the bad thing because they really don't want the really good things in their life anyhow, and so therefore it's easier for them to make the real thing bad so they can feel good about it. That's exactly what they did back there. They went in there and said, hey, boy, something's changed here. Wow, my God, there's the Holy of Holies. We all should be dead. And somebody said, well, I'll tell you what's worse than being dead looking at it. And they said, what's that? If the people find out, we'll be out of a job. So they got Aunt Edna, and she came in with her needle and thread and sewed that sucker back up. That's my own version of it, based on chubby chase and family vacation. <laughs> but it's a thing where I, I cannot, I, I, look, I, can't, I cannot overestimate or underestimate the dishonesty of not only the nation of Israel when it comes to seeing the real things of God, but God's people today, too. I mean, it's, it's unparalleled, and the parallels go right back to here. These guys saw the real deal, and yet they pretended they didn't. And yet they still went on bad-mouthing Christ. They still went on saying all the things about him uh, and his new church. You know, they persecuted them. They aligned with the Roman, other Roman government, which is a picture of God's people aligning with other unsaved people to destroy the work of God. And you know what? It, God, God always prevails. And it's an incredible principle when you see something like that that you realize that uh, the most dishonest people on this planet in the Old Testament was the religious leaders of Israel and God's people and then God's people in the New Testament today. Uh, because of the fact that uh, they always try to cover up the real deal to <clears throat> exonerate themselves when they're not the real deal. So, you know, it's one of those great principles that you find tucked away in all of this. <clears throat> and he says in verse 10, by the which uh, will uh, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, and every priest standeth daily ministering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It's worthless. They know it's worthless, yet they still do it. But this man, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. 
Now, the beauty of this is uh, making it into an inspirational application. The Bible says that after Christ went back up to heaven, that he sat down on the right hand of God, and that's where he's seated today. And we know that from Romans chapter 8 and other places that that's where he makes intercession for us. But I want you to know Ephesians 2, 6, uh, Hebrews uh, 1, 3, and uh, Isaiah 66, 1, uh, talks about the God making his enemies his footstool. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, when he sat down, we're seated with him. Because the Bible says we are seated in heavenly places. If he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, so is each one of us in Christ. For henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And of course, that's the second coming of Christ. That's Isaiah 66, 1. Uh, when, uh, you know, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. And so that will always be a reference wherever you find that to the second coming when his enemies are subdued. For by what offering he hath perfected forever them that are uh, sanctified. No, that's the nation of Israel. But it's also us. And he's talking this to the Jews, trying to get them to see that the difference between the Old Testament sacrifices and Christ are the New Testament sacrifices, which you killed, by the way, is the real deal. Whereof, uh, verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us after that uh, he hath said before. This is a covenant that I will make with them after those days. And of course, again, <clears throat> this has nothing to do with the church. Now, we got sanctified the day you got saved, but that's not what he's dealing with here. He's dealing with Israel's sanctification and ours in the process, but primarily he's dealing with the nation of Israel and he's going back now to the covenant that we saw in chapter 8 and 9. This is the covenant. This is Hebrews 8.10. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. And I told you many, many times, anytime you find the word those days, the, the definitive on that will be Matthew chapter uh, 24. That's uh, always the tribulation period. Saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and my minds and, and in their minds will I write them, millennial reign of Christ. Have their sins and iniquities are I remember no more. Now, uh, now where remission of these is, uh, there is no more offering for sin. This is what, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow when we get into baptism. This is what Israel was offered in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And it's always dealing with the nation of Israel. And here's the counterverse that goes along with Acts chapter 2, verse 38. You need to put those two verses together in your Bible here if you don't have it. I'd go here and then I'd put it over in Acts 2 so you could cross it back and forth wherever you run into it. And uh, this is what will happen when Israel gets into the millennium. As a nation, God will remember the sins and iniquities no more. And that's what he was offering them in Acts chapter 2. That's why in Acts chapter 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, he's not preaching to individuals, he's preaching to a nation trying to give them the remission of sin. And, uh, you know, that's the key. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ. And, of course, the holiest, he's making a reference here, is the holy of holies. What he's saying here is this, where in the Old Testament they couldn't go into the holy of holies uh, 
in the New Testament, now they can. And the Holy of Holies in the New Testament is your personal relationship with Christ that he's living in you. In the Old Testament, it was a, a physical place. In the New Testament, it's a spiritual place. And Christ's death on a cross made the difference between the Old Testament one and the New Testament one. So, is this making any sense to anybody? <laughs> or am I just talking here to hear myself? Because it's making great sense to me. Okay. And then he says in verse 20, By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now, that is, that is a great verse there that tells you that the veil is a type of Christ uh, in the tabernacle. That verse says, by a new and living way. The old way was the tabernacle and the veil separated the Holy of Holies from man. The new way is there is no veil the Holy of Holies now is in your heart and you can have access to God 24-7 without going through any kind of litigation like the Old Testament priest did. And uh, you know, that's what he's saying. And he clearly told you there that the veil, then I, you love it when he does this, that is to say his flesh. He just defined the veil for you as a type. And you want to watch things like that in the Bible. He'll do that, or the Bible will do that quite often. And having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, again, you could see how somebody would take this and try to put this into the church and try to use it to prove baptism for salvation. Notice the two key words, sprinkled and bodies washed with pure water. So if you're a Catholic, you get somebody sprinkled with holy water based on this verse here. And of course, you know, it, nothing like a pandemic to define and reveal everybody. The Catholic Church has quit sprinkling people with holy water because they was afraid that the water would be contaminated and then pass on the coronavirus. <laughs> Excuse me for bringing this up, but I thought it was holy water. <laughs> I guess not. You see, yeah, nothing, <clears throat> if you just watch, Nothing will reveal where people are, are really at uh, more than, you know, just where their true convictions are. Here's a church that, you know, every time you go in there, you take it, dip your finger in it and cross yourself and put some holy water on you. And now you're whatever you are. And, you know, that water is consecrated. That water is holy. And it's, uh, it's different than the water, you, you know, and if birds would drink out of it, they'd live forever and, you know, and things like that. Uh, if mosquitoes would nest in it and lay eggs, then they would be eternal mosquitoes and all that stuff. But when it comes to the real rubber meeting the road, you can't put holy water on yourself anymore because other people are dipping their little fingers in that and who knows where those fingers have been. And so you're going to contaminate yourself with something that's supposed to be holy. How ridiculous is that? I mean, you know, it's crazy. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. 
uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I cannot tell you how many charismatic funerals I have been to. I've been one here a couple of years ago where <clears throat> the lady was a staunch charismatic up one side and down the other. And, uh, and, and I, I went to the funeral and these guys were, I mean, there are some really halfway fundamental charismatic preachers. There really are. But then, boy, you got the ones out there that are just way out of line. And this was one of them. It's the one over here off the freeway there on 435. I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, this guy went on and on and on. And I'm standing there thinking to myself, I've watched this guy when he was on television. And I remember him because he had the goofiest, ugliest socks on you would ever see in your life. <laughs> this guy would have a regular suit on and his look, I thought his ankles were on fire. It was the color of his socks. And he'd always sit there with his wife, and his wife, bless her heart, she looked like she'd been dead for 35 years. And I've watched him take on Baptist questions on healing when they came in and just ridicule them and just, you know, ripped up. And it's easy when, you know, it's easy when you have a one-sided deal that somebody can ask the question. And it, it's, it's not like here where you can, you can argue your point or you have a point to say something. When you're on television and you just take questions and somebody, you can, you can handle the questions as dishonestly as you want to because there's no rebuttal. That's tough in a situation like this. But these guys would never put themselves in a situation like this. And he went on and on and on and on. And yet I was sitting there listening to him and two or three of the other cronies. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, what, you know what? Everybody in this room is absolutely ridiculously stupid. Here's a guy that took on everybody on the TV about healing and all that. And then you had a woman die in your church. You see, it worked right up to the point that they died. And, you know, it's, it's nothing, nothing will be the rubber hit the road of truth than when push comes to shove. Because when push comes to shove in your life or this life or whatever the case may be, if it's what you do that is the key of what you said God was. And when it falls flat on its face, like here, then this is where you're at. So he says, these priests are standing day after day doing the same sacrifices that never can take away sin. You know why? Because somebody walked in there and now was exposed to the real deal. And they sewed that veil back up. And some of God's people get exposed here in other Bible-believing churches with the real deal. And you know what you do in your heart? You sew that veil right back up. Oh, it's, it's just so easy when you put it together. And uh, this man, you know, uh, by one offering, uh, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost is also a witness, uh, after he has said and, and before. And I will, and this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and write in their minds. And their sins and iniquities, well, I remember no more, now where remission is. And you want to get that down. Having therefore, brethren, the boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, Christ did. Through the veil, there it is. And having a high priest over the house of God, and, of course, the house of God, we'll get into that when we get into John chapter 
2, I think it is. And uh, we'll lay out the household of God and how, you know, Christ is over that. So anyway. Uh, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, here again, the word sprinkled and washed with pure water. Notice those are Old Testament concepts. The high priest sprinkled the blood on the Holy of Holies on the altar. And they, 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 the uh, water back in the Old Testament was the cleansing uh, uh, that you had to be clean before you could go in. So when the priest, before he went into the tabernacle, there was a laver of water there. He had to wash his feet. It's, it's all Old Testament stuff. And when a guy tries to lift these out and put them into the church, you know, then he's violating the whole context of the book here. And of course, uh, you know, if you wanted to make a, a you know, a, a, an inspirational application of it, I mean, if I was pressed to do that, I would say that the sprinkling, uh, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience would be the verses in the Word of God that you sprinkle into your heart by learning them and studying it. And the washing here would be, you know, the washing of the water by the Word if I was pushed to make a spiritual application to it. But even at that, you've got to be careful. Because when you get into 24, 25, 26, the church goes out the door. So you've got to be careful. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love uh, and to good works. And then a great verse that Baptists used all the time, which is a good verse, taken out of context, but you can use it. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some be, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. Now, the reason why this verse will work across the board is because you can use it for us because Ephesians clears it fairly that Christ loved the church and died for it, and we are not to shake the assembling of ourselves together. That's clear. But it's also directly given to Israel, and the reason why it works both ways is because both Israel and you and me are a church. Israel is the church in the wilderness. Um, they're, they're, they're a church. They're a called-out assembly physically. You and I are a called-out assembly spiritual. So they're both churches. There's four or five different churches in the Bible. So it's a thing where, you know, you've got to know that. So that's why the verse goes either way, but primarily it's falling on the Israel side. But you can use it. I mean, it's very clear that that's a principle that slices both ways because you and I are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because that's what the body, when the body meets. That's the church. The church is not this building. The church is us. And when we come together, we form that church. And, you know, so we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's a foreign concept today because most people come to church not because they see that concept and that principle, but when it's convenient for them. And, you know, that's just the way it works today. Verse 26. Now, here's the killer. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, all the big radio, big-time preachers that uh, try to preach this and, and fall flat on their face, they will tell you that uh, that if you continue to sin willfully after you're saved, that there comes a time when God won't forgive you anymore. 
And of course, that's about as blasphemous uh, as you can ever be. Uh, it's blasphemous in the, in the first case because uh, maybe we're all different than them, but uh, sin has never snuck up on me. The first example of sin in the Bible that you get an inside look is Adam. Adam came home and he looked at wife and she said, what happened to you? You're not Snow White anymore. One of the seven dwarfs show up. What happened? You're not Snow White. Now you're, 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 you've got a pinkish color to you. Where before you were Snow White, now you're, 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 you look like you've kind of got a reddish cast to you, your flesh. And uh, she, she explained to him, well, the you know, friend of the family showed up and we had a couple drinks together and, uh, you know, he showed me the tree over here and he said, you ate of that tree? And he said, yeah, I did. And then the Bible says she gave to her husband. Now, Adam had a choice. He had the same choice we all had. He had a choice between a, a, a person in his life that disobeyed God and staying with God. You know what he did? He willfully chose to leave God and go with her. She didn't kind of take the grapes and crush them up into his drink. She didn't bring him a cup of coffee and say, well, I found a little additive today, and I think it's going to spike up your coffee, and then found out later it was grape juice. No, he looked at her, looked at God, looked at her, looked at God, and said, I'll see you, God, and he sinned willfully. And every one of us, when we sin, that's exactly what we do. We look at the book, we look at God, we look at the book, we look at what we want to do, and in time we just say, God, I'll see you later, and that's where we go. And, of course, for that verse, first of all, it says, if we sin willfully, uh, we all sin willfully. It's not an if. It's just a matter of when. And uh, he says there's no more sacrifice for sin. Now, to say that you can get to the point in your life where God won't forgive you, that's crazy. I mean, how, how, how lame your understanding of the Bible is. How could you say that and with a straight face understand that when Christ died on the cross, he paid for all your sins, you hadn't committed any of them yet. So he just died for the ones knowing ahead in his foreknowledge that you were going to sin stupidly and not die for the ones that you sin willfully? Are you kidding me? But you see, when you don't have a Bible, this is where you find yourself. So these guys, you know, and the only thing dumber than these guys with the Bible are the people who listen to them. And, of course, uh, it's a thing where what he's saying here, and this is why I gave you the context of this chapter, what he's saying, that Israel had, you guys had three chances to get to Christ. And you rejected all three. And now, because you rejected him, he's the only salvation. So as long as you hold this position, there is no sacrifice for sins. Didn't you see the verse up here? Over here, uh, verse 11, for every priest standing, daily ministering and offering times, the same sacrifices. Those are the sacrifices that he's making a reference to. Stay within the context. The sacrifices that, they, that remaineth no more sacrifice for sins is the one the Old Testament priests who are now in the New Testament still doing the same stuff because they rejected Christ. That's what he's talking about. Nothing like a little Bible, just believing it. And now look at now, here's the other one. But a, cert, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Now, they'll try to put that into a Christian's life. They'll try to make that verse into a Christian's life and anybody can find two key words there that knows the context of that verse is the second coming of Christ. 
It's not the church age. None of this is to the church age. And when you make it Hebrews Christian, then you just start down a road that you're never going to come back from. Notice the two key words, but a certain fearful looking of judgment, fiery indignation to devour the adversaries. Now, where does that happen at? Where do you find those words? Malachi 4, Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 33, Isaiah chapter 51, Hosea chapter 8, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, Isaiah chapter 26, Isaiah 66, Jeremiah 50, Ezekiel 38, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. You want more? But you see, when they don't use the Bible to define those verses, where you're at. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three, uh, under two or three witnesses. All right, so he's staying in the context. Moses' law, hello? Of whom much sore punishment, suppose ye shall be uh, thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant, the covenant, the covenant. Now, how do you make that the church? The church doesn't have any covenant. The blood of the covenant. That's the covenant that he talked about over here uh, in verse 16 that he talked about in Hebrews chapter 8. Why can't you connect the dots here? Of how much sore punishment suppose ye that be uh, uh, through worthy, uh, uh, thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite uh, under the spirit of grace. So, I mean, it's Israel. I mean, it's Israel. Verse 30, for we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth to me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. That's a, that's a second coming verse. The people there are Israel, not the church. Did you ever read anything even like that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Now, I know it's going to be rough for us, but, I mean, come on, vengeance? You see, God took vengeance out on his son on the cross so God would never have to take it out on you. Don't you get that? And if you're saved and Christ is living in you and you're in him and he takes vengeance out on you, then God's taking vengeance out on his son again. I mean, what planet do you live on? Now, I'll be honest with you. When I grew up, you know, when I grew up you know, getting learning the Bible and being taught the Bible way back in the day, you know, right after the Civil War, uh, I'm going to tell you, this was Bible 101. This wasn't some deep thing. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, you got these things, you were trained in these things, and sometimes you get these things, they have to be beat into you. Because we're stubborn people. And we live, in a, we, live in a, we live in a faggot Christianity today where everybody is just kind of, you know, uh, just kind of very loose and very flimsy and very effeminate. You, they can't take any hard line st structure. And, uh, you know, if, if, if most of God's people were in the military, uh, you'd be home with mama in 15 minutes. I don't care how tough you think you are. Because you have, to, you, have to, you have to conform to a discipline, and we don't want to do that. 
And these things that I've learned, I mean, yeah, you get the idea that, you know, looking at me now some 50-some years later and you think, oh, yeah, Bob just sat down and he just, no, no. I had to learn these things the hard way. I had my rear end kicked upside so many times, you know, that, uh, you know, that I couldn't sit down for a week sometime. But that's how you learn, but not in this Christianity. No, you know, God's people were a bunch of phony sissies today. I mean, they're effeminate. They work really good down at Liberty Memorial in that long crossway there where all the fags get arrested. You'd be really good down there because you can't take it. You can't take it. And it's a thing where real Christianity has to endure a hardness. And that isn't always from the world out there. You know, when you get in the military, the hardness you face before you ever face the Viet Cong or the Afghanistans is the hardness of your drill instructor. And you don't get a chance to whammy, whammy, cry about it and, and, and whine about it. You know what? If you do, you get to go home. Back in the day, they didn't send you home. They send you home today. Back in my day, they just, you know what they did? We had a guy one time in basic that was, I've always felt bad about this. But, you know, it was back, way back before I was right with the Lord. And the way they do it back there is you have a guy to screw up and a guy that uh, wouldn't do what's right. Then they'd bring that guy out, make him stand up there and punish everybody else. I think there was a movie made about that, you know, Code Reds, you know, the Code Reds go on. Sure they did. You betcha they did. And I remember one guy one time, he kept screwing up, couldn't do what's right. And, and he wasn't a bad kid, but this is, the, this, is the, this is the army, Mr. Jones. I mean, this is where you're at. And he, he, I remember they used to punish us and, and make him stand up there. And, you know, they'd make him stand up there and laugh at us. And because he screwed up and they made us do 100 push-ups or they made us crawl through the mud or they made us do this or they made us do that. You know what they did one night? They got that guy and tied his hands and feet. It was two-story barracks with a fire escape down the back. They took him up on the second floor and threw him off, broke both legs and both arms, put him in the hospital. Terrible, isn't it? Hey, you had to do your hardest as a good soldier of Jesus Christ because it's, it's going to be tough. And you're, you're, you know what, till you get out there on your own, you're, you're, you're in military, you go through, through things. You go through basic and you go through AIT. They lessen up a little bit in AIT, but the discipline is much stronger. But they don't cut you any slack. And I've always tried to trade my people based like they train them in the military because we're supposed to be soldiers. And uh, you know what? Uh, every time they do a cycle through basic training, you lose about, what, 5 or 6%. And every time we do a cycle here and we try to train people, you lose a percentage of them. You know why? They don't, they don't pack the gear. They don't have the tools. They don't have the guts. They don't have the courage. And it's a thing where they, uh, you know, they, if they were in the military, they would be home faster than they got in. Uh, if you ever go to the military and they take you on a bus, my suggestion is get a round-trip ticket because you'll be coming home. And that's, that's just the way it is. And it's a thing where, you know, the judgment of God is, the judgment seat of Christ is, is a thing where we're all going to have to stand. And I would do anything in the world to keep you from losing any more than you're going to lose. But you don't do that by being nice to you all the time. You got to endure a hardness. And the guys and the gals who can endure the hardness, you're a cut above the rest. And uh, you'll, you'll make it. And, uh, you know, you know already what we're in here now with all the pandemic and everything that's going on. This is not going to be a cakewalk. 
And it's going to take men and women who in, can endure that hardness. So it's a thing where, you know, it's, it's just the way it works. And, uh, you know, the Lord is going to judge his people. And my job is to, for in your life, I, no matter how hard I am on you right now, I'm going to tell you something right now. No matter how hard I am on you right now, someday the double seat of Christ, if you make it through, you're going to thank me for that. Because no matter how hard I am on you, you have no idea what's coming your way, how hard he's going to be on you. God's people are ridiculously stupid today. And it's the things where it's because they're weak. They're effeminate. You know, and it's the thing where they can't endure that hardness. And it's just the way it is. And there's a judgment coming, but it isn't this one. This one's second coming. And God is going to judge his people. Now look what he says here. Here's another one. <laughs> oh. ah, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Really? Well, maybe at the second coming of Christ. You know what David did one time? David screwed up a number of the people. Remember that story? And God came down and he says, David, he says, I'm going to whack you. But I'm going to be good about it, and I'm going to whack you one of three ways. So, David, behind door number one is one way I'm going to whack you. Behind door number two is another way I'm going to whack you. Behind door number three is another way I'm going to whack you. And he tells them which one it is, but he says, door number three is the fact that I'm going to judge you. The other ones are going to be your enemies and your nation, but I'm going, number, door number three is I'm going to deal with you myself. Now, you get the pick, David. You know what David said? Paraphrase it. He says, Lord, you know, there's some things I don't have to pray about. He says, no matter what I've done, no matter what I'm going to get, no matter what I deserve, I'm always better off in your hands than I am the enemies of yours. So he turned himself over to God. You know why? That verse didn't apply to him. No matter what God deals with you, does, does for you through this church, through my preaching, or through his own personal relationship with you trying to get you to get your head out of wherever it's at. You know what it is? It's a lot better off than facing him with the judgment seat of Christ. But even at that, if you go through the judgment seat of Christ and you lose everything you got and you're as naked as the day you were born, it's still a good thing for you and for me to fall into the hands of a living God because we get to go to heaven. That's a second coming promise. That has nothing to do with you and me. But call, verse 32, to remembrance, the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great flight of afflictions. Now he's talking about there the fact that, uh, that uh, in the Old Testament, God illuminated the nation of Israel. And after that, they still endured some affliction. Now you can apply that to you and me. I'm teaching you the Bible. I'm giving you the Bible. This is Bible Institute. Tomorrow morning, we'll have another Bible Institute. Thursday night, we had another one. And when we get back to full bore, we'll have one with the people ministry. My job is to illuminate you and give you great truth and great light. But I'm going to tell you right now, with more, the more light comes more affliction. With more light becomes more responsibility. The more you know, the more you're accountable for. That's why if I really wanted to do you a service, I'd teach you all the Bible you know and then kill every one of you. <laughs> Shave you the affliction. Because, brother, the more you learn, the more the devil's going to come after you. 
And the more you grow, the more he's going to try to stop you. And the more illumination that God puts in you through this church and the teaching of the Bible, the more the world is going to come after you and the more God's people are going to come after you. So I'm doing you a favor, but in short term, I ain't doing you any favor. But long term, it's all going to work out for you if you stay with it. And then he says here, partly while ye were made a grazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. Now, the word grazing stock is an old English word, and it means to look down upon somebody, uh, you know, uh, to belittle somebody. And he's basically saying, this is talking to the nation of Israel, but it fits across the board. He says, uh, you know, uh, you'll be looked down upon. You know, if you have the truth, you'll be made fun of. You'll be lied about. You'll be told uh, all the things that, uh, you know, and the reproaches and afflictions. And uh, he says, uh, you know, in Israel's case, he says, and sometimes uh, you you were companions of these people, and they turned on you. But he says in verse 34, uh, uh, for ye had compassion on me in my bonds and took joyfully in spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Now, doctrinally, all this is the tribulation. And here again, notice the two key words, verse 34, better and enduring. You, you just can't miss those words. And if you don't have all these marked in your Bible, at least mark them as we're kind of going through them here. Because that's how important they are. And he says, uh, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Now that's a great verse. That's another thing I try to build into you here, is confidence. Now, your reward at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be based on a lot of things, but certainly if there's one word that would incorporate all of that, it would be the word confidence. What do you have confidence in this morning? And of course, uh, it starts with the Word of God, and it starts with your relationship with Christ, and then it works right on down the line. You have confidence in the Word of God. You have confidence in uh, you have confidence in uh, your relationship with Christ, the Word of God. You have, then it goes down, do you have confidence in your church? Then it comes down, do you have confidence in your pastor? Do you have confidence in Sunday morning church service, Thursday night, this morning? Because it's those confidences that you have, if they're in the right things, that's going to lead to you getting everything that God has for you. And it's because you put confidence in the right things. Paul said, be ye followers of me, even if I'm followers of Christ. People put confidence in him. And people who go to church, they put confidence in their pastor. Cases in many, 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 many cases, the confidence is is falsely put because the guy doesn't even have a Bible. And it's a thing where he, he, you know, he he, he just uses the people uh, without ever giving them any real truth. And people are, are okay with that today. And it's a thing where that's the way that it all, it all flows. So he says there, he says there, uh, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. And a lot of God's people have done that. A lot of God's people have lost their confidence in anything that God has for them. And that's why they're out in the world. 
and they've lost confidence in the things that God has given them, and that's why they're where they're at. And, uh, you know, he, he, he says down near the end of that thing is that uh, uh, a recompense of, a great recompense of reward. It's going to affect your reward at the judgment seat of Christ because there's certain things that you cannot take out of your life as a Christian and still make it there, make it well there. Then he says, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Now that's clearly to the nation of Israel. That promise is the second coming of Christ, which we've already seen uh, in the book of things. But it's a, in a practical way, uh, it, it, you can put it into your life and my life because of the parallels. Right now, you have to have patience. And you're all learning the Bible, and you're all studying the Bible. And the end result of the Bible is the promises of the Bible. So there's no fast track to that. There's no quick way to do that. So you have to, you have to, uh, you have to have patience. And after you have done the will of God, being more like Christ every day in your life, Romans chapter 12, uh, you might receive the promise. You'll learn the book. If you have confidence in this church and confidence in the teaching of this church and confidence in the Bible this church has and you do your work, you'll learn it. You'll get the promises. But that's a spiritual application, you see. Now verse 37. For yet a little while and he shall come, uh, will come and will not tarry. Now that little while there, uh, again, will be the uh, in a doctrinal sense, will be the tribulation. But there's a little more to it than that. Come back to John chapter 16. Now here's again, here's, let me give you the definitive verse on this passage. And come back to John chapter 16. Now look at this. Now this is no accident that this happens. Let's read it here, John 16, and let's pick it up in verse uh, verse 14. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Now here it comes. You don't get your little red pencil out? Your little China marker that's loaded with coronavirus because it came from China. Here we go. Let's mark them, kitties. Be doobies, not don't bees. Verse 16, a little while. There's number one. You shall not see me. And again, a little while. There's number two. You shall see me because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples unto themselves, What is this that he saith unto us a little while? Number three, and he shall not see me for again a little while. Number four, uh, they said, Therefore, what is this that thou sayest a little while? Five, verse 19, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and he said to them, Do you inquire yourselves of that? I inquire a little while. There's six, and you shall not see me again a, a little while and you shall see me. Seven times the phrase, a little while. Now, two things here. First of all, 
one day with the Lord is a thousand years. So he's talking about the 7,000 years coming up to the second coming. But he's also from Hebrews a little while will be seven years of the tribulation period. So what he's saying back there in Hebrews, you can take it a couple of different ways, both right. We'll get back here again. I lost my place. He's saying here that um, for yet a little while and he shall come and will come and will not tarry. Now, if we're going to use the thousand-year little while, we know that there's seven, but we also know that the church age makes up the last two before the third, the seventh one, which is the millennium. So the little while here would be the church age, telling the Jew that Christ is going to come back at the end of the church age. Uh, you want to take it the other way, then we know that we have seven years of the tribulation period, and uh, that's clearly laid out over there in John chapter 16. Uh, so, you know, it, it's little things like that. And you, you need to mark those in your Bible, and then you need to run all the references back and forth so you have everything that you need to have. Uh, for yet a little while, and he shall come, uh, will come, will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man, notice he didn't, he took out the his now. You see that thing? See, we're in the New Testament now. See that? You got to catch those things. The just shall live by faith. Back there where we read it before, it was the just shall live by his faith. He took out the his because we're in the New Testament now. You can't live by your own faith anymore. Now you got to get the faith of Christ, even if you are a Jew. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Uh, But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now, that's a clearly, if you didn't get it any other way, clearly now you know that we're dealing with the tribulation period because it says perdition. And that would be the Antichrist. Somebody going back to the Antichrist because uh, John chapter 17, verse 12, Revelation chapter 17, verse 11 is the only two times in the Bible you find the phrase son of perdition. So it's clearly, all of this is clearly a picture of the nation of Israel having the truth, rejecting that truth, going on pretending that the truth didn't happen, offering the same sacrifices, and now we are told that those sacrifices, after they have sinned willfully, that they're still doing, can never take away sin. That is the jest of chapter 10, and that is a key chapter. Okay, well, we'll hold up there.